Welcome to the Grand Conversation, the Machon Siach podcast. Machon Siach at SAR High School, honoring the memory of Belda Kaufman Lindebaum Zichrona Levracha, is the research arm of SAR High School, where faculty bridge theory and practice on matters of Jewish education, curriculum, and culture. I am your host, Shmuel Hain, Rosh Beit Midrash at SAR High School, and director of media and publications at Machon Siach. Our producer is Avi Bloom, and our engineer is Greg Schmidt. This special episode of The Grand Conversation is a long time coming. Six years ago, Machon Siach, together with a number of other yeshiva high schools, committed to thinking differently about how we navigate substance use in our high school communities. We started a year-long process of research and reflection. During that year, we quickly encountered the groundbreaking prevention science work of the University of Washington. Their data-driven research yielded the surveys and subsequent parent learning program, Guiding Good Choices, which have been embraced at SAR High School and many more yeshiva high schools. The person who has led us on this journey has been Ms. Daylene Bilyeu, the Director of Training and Family Programs and Senior Community Prevention Strategist for Guiding Good Choices. We are thrilled to share this fascinating conversation between Dr. Rifka Schwartz, who has been Machon Siach's primary liaison with Guiding Good Choices, and Ms. Daylene Bulyu. Hi, I'm Rifka Schwartz, Associate Principal at SAR High School and Director of Research and Program Development with Machon Siach. And today we are talking with Daylene Bulyu, the Director of Training and Family Programs at the School of Social Work at the University of Washington. We're really excited to have Daylene on with us and to be in conversation together with the SAR community because she is the person who really led us through learning about prevention science and towards what eventually became both the surveying effort of thousands of students across 20 modern Orthodox high schools that I hope we'll have some opportunity to talk about, as well as the Guiding Good Choices Parenting Program, which is now going strong in SAR, all ninth grade families have to participate in it, and in which a number of other schools have taken up the opportunity to offer GGC to their parent bodies, and more still are getting trained. So welcome, Daylene. We're so excited to have you here. Thanks, Rivka. So to put a very unfair question to you, I'm going to ask you to summarize your life's work as briefly as possible. What do you do? So currently, I work with communities across the globe to help them really analyze what's going on in their communities and to find research-driven solutions um, that will help make their communities a better place to live and have better chance for their kids to thrive. So better chance for kids to thrive using research and using data is what I'm hearing from you. Those are three things that we do, absolutely. Those are the core principles of the public health approach to prevention. And we at SAR High School came to this quite a few years ago with Rabbi Tolia Hartstark, founding principal of SAR High School, and Dean of Machon Siach, looking at what he thought was a problematic party culture in our community, the normalizing of adolescent drinking, and feeling like there had to be some way to tackle it. We started by thinking that we would do this work just within SAR High School, and then it became clear to us that that wouldn't quite be sufficient because when our kids engage in these unhealthy behaviors, they do them together with kids from other schools. And so it seemed like we needed to reach out to the leadership of other schools and involve them in this effort. That ended up in a meeting with principals or administrators from six or seven other yeshiva high schools. And one of it was one of them who introduced us to a video that he had seen about a public health approach being tried in Iceland, led by a guy named Dr. Harvey Milkman, who's quite his own character, but that's a story for another day. 
Since he was based in Iceland, we thought that it made more sense to find some outfit based in the United States doing similar kinds of work, bringing a public health approach to bear on these questions. When I told Aileen that I was going to be asking her about this, she dug up and found the very first email that Rabbi Hartstark sent her in February of 2018. Yeah. My name is Rabbi Tilly Hartstark. I'm principal of SAR High School. Our school has 540 students. That's funny. We're now at 670 some odd. And I have convened a group of principals of high schools serving a largely similar demographic to study the growing party culture which exists in different degrees and manifestations in our respective communities. Our focus is less on the abuse of drugs and alcohol and more on the prevalence of the use of drugs and alcohol. And the email goes on from there. So that was really the mandate for this work from the beginning. And that's what we've been working on ever since. Do you remember when you first encountered us, met us, heard about us? Well, first, you know, I'm going to back up and ask you. Where are you from? What were you doing before you got involved in this prevention science work? People here at the University of Washington, they might think that you live on the West Coast of the United States. That's not, in fact, the case. So can you give some sense of the context that you're in and from which you emerge and in which you're hearing about the modern Orthodox community in the New York area? Yeah, interesting question. So I actually am from Maine, um, which some of you may be able to pick up in my accent. I'm definitely from the Northeast. Um, I was a public high school teacher teaching chemistry, life sciences, botany, um, and we lost um, several members of our school population to suicide in one year. And um, it profoundly changed the course of my life. I moved from a focus on biochemistry, chemical engineering, life sciences, to uh, really thinking about how to better support kids, protect kids uh, in our community. And so I um, saw this ad in the newspaper uh, wanting a research coordinator for a test of a public health system. And on a whim, because I didn't have a master's in social work, I applied for it. And they actually hired me to coordinate this prevention coalition. And the work was being uh, led by the University of Washington. So I started working with the University of Washington back in 2003 and learning about prevention science and learning about guiding good choices and all these other things. And Finally, uh, because I had a teaching background, they invited me to help other places learn about the social development strategy and communities that care and all of this. And so I started um, working with UW, and after a little while, we all decided that that's probably where I needed to stay. And so I've been officially full-time at the University of Washington for seven years now, but I've been working with them directly for 20 it's interesting to hear that and to think about how close to the start of your full-time work with the University of Washington we met you. And when you heard from us for the first time, if you don't mind me flattering ourselves that we're interesting or different, and we could talk later about how different we are or aren't, did you know anything about Orthodox Jews, modern Orthodox Jews, our community, our population? I knew very little, I have to be honest. Um, there's not a large contingent of modern Orthodox Jews in my little place in Maine. Um, in fact, there's not many people at all, 800 people in my hometown. Um, Fun fact, Maine is the least densely populated state, now you know. Yeah, it's only 1.3 million of us in the whole state right now. But no, I had very little knowledge. and. Um, it was fascinating to me uh, to listen um, about the unique nature of your your community, uh, but to, ask, to hear the true desire to be able to support kids uh, in a way um, that was research-based and, and had this broader approach uh, stands out 
really clearly that that you were supportive of research that you were wanted to support kids in the best way possible. So you say the unique nature of our community, but one of the things that we've learned from you and hearing about your work is that you have supported and worked with a lot of different communities that are distinctive in different ways. And I think that was actually one of the first things we learned from you or you know learned the most directly from you. Uh, I think many of us approach this thinking, yeah, well, these programs that they developed for the country as a whole, but our community is different and things may not work for us exactly the way they work for the country as a whole. And you uh, helped clarify that for us. I may have said something along the lines that every community um, really believes that is that they are unique. Um, that is the most common thing that we hear is that some version of we are special. Um, and what I usually try to invite people to think about is the fact that, yes, each community is unique, just as each of us are unique as individuals, but we have more in common than we do differences. If we really think about um, our human experience, there's a lot in common. My memory of this is a little bit sharper <laughs> edge. My memory is that they lean said to us, you're not special. But maybe she didn't put it quite that way. But I think it was actually really eye-opening for us to realize that even though there are certain ways that our community is distinctive, Daylene had to learn about Shabbos and about Purim and about all kinds of other things as we talked about prevention issues, but that the basic way that human beings function and the basic factors that contribute to healthy development or to unhealthy development for kids, for families, for communities are the same. We've also had the chance sometimes to encounter other distinctive communities that Daylene works with. So when I did my training to be a facilitator for Guide and Good Choices, I was actually in a training cohort with a number of Latter-day Saints women, Mormon women um, from the Mountain West. And that was fascinating because their community is also a distinctive community that while obviously religiously, theologically is very different from Orthodox Judaism, sociologically in certain ways has real similarities. Families larger than average numbers of children, mm -hmm. clear rules and standards, and also dealing with that kids aren't always living out the parents or the community standards or expectations and how to handle that and what to do with that. So way back when we got in touch with you and we started talking about what to do with the problem and you suggested to us that the very first thing we needed to do was to get a handle on what the problem was. Right. As parents or as teachers or as adults in the community, we often think that we have a good handle on what kids are facing. You know, we all, most of us attended school, so thereby we think we, we understand school. And what we now know is the best way to learn about what's really going on for kids is to ask the kids directly. So we recommend student self-report surveys. And so we started exploring what would that look like? And that was a whole adventure and a half. Daylene put us in touch with, we didn't do the surveying ourselves, with a survey and research firm called Bach Harrison. And we reached out to other modern Orthodox, centrist Orthodox, what we sometimes call Yeshiva League day schools, to find out if they would be interested in doing similar kinds of surveying. By the time we were done that first year, I think we had 19 schools surveying on February 27th of 2019. We surveyed 10th and 12th graders because the federal government also surveys 10th and 12th graders every year. And so that gives us a like-to-like -like sample as a basis for comparison. So we did the surveying on February 27th. I still remember so clearly that feeling of after so many months of working and getting the survey sent to each school and the right numbers and the right forms. In some states, then parents had to explicitly consent to have their kids be surveyed. That law in New Jersey has since changed, but at the time it made surveying in New Jersey much more of a headache than surveying in New York. And on February 27th, when the actual surveying was happening, I remember walking around the floors 
with this feeling of more than excitement. I'm not really sure how to describe it. I'm like, it's really happening. It's really real. Kids are really sitting and filling out surveys. And that was going to give us a chance to get data. But I have to ask you, Daylene, because it's a question we get asked all the time. Oh, come on. You're going to ask kids to fill out a survey about what drugs they use or they don't use? Of course, they're not going to tell you the truth. Actually, most kids will, as long as the surveys are anonymous. I mean, there's been a lot of research into this. Um, And we know that there are only a very small a uh, number of students who are untruthful. And the surveys actually have some ways um, to tell. One of the methods is quite simple. We ask kids, were you truthful? If they say no, then those surveys are excluded. We ask them about some fictitious drugs, for example. And if they say yes, their surveys are excluded. Or if they report using uh, amounts of substances that isn't realistic, those surveys are excluded. Only about 3% of the surveys in any given population end up being screened out. Um, and so we're, we're very confident that in the anonymous surveys that we use, that kids are honest. One of the things that we did, we had the option of surveying kids either on paper or on the computer. And we made a conscious choice to do paper surveys that students fill out bubbles with a pencil on because if you take a paper survey and you don't write your name, you know that when you turn it in, it's completely anonymous. And if you take an online survey, even if I assure you that it's anonymous, students might wonder if we were in fact tracking them or their emails or somehow trying to identify it. And so the surveys were completely anonymous. I'll go one further, and this was particular to our school community, our our broader community, our Yeshivali community. We kept the schools anonymous. We had the sense that if the surveys were going to be used to say this school is better than that school or this community is better than that community, schools would participate once and then they wouldn't participate again. And we understood even at the very beginning that this would be a long-term effort of gathering data and trying interventions and gathering more data. And in order to keep everybody willing to stay engaged in the effort, we made a commitment from the beginning that no individual school would get their own data. And it has been very tempting many times since. Individual schools have said to us they really, really want to see their own data. Of course they do. And we really, really want to see our own data. And we have all maintained that commitment of not breaking out any one school's data because we thought it would undermine the broader effort, even though everybody thinks it would be really interesting to see, even within the schools in that broader population. So we took the surveys on February 27th of 2019. Took a few weeks for Bach Harrison to get all the surveys back and do data analysis and gather the data. And we got survey results in April, right before Pesach of 2019. And I, again, I have this very visceral, vivid memory of opening up the results and what they said. And this is something else that we quote daily on all the time. And if you're, it's like being a teacher, you know, you say things that you don't really remember what you said, but the kids remember them forever. Um, we looked at the data together and you said to us, your community has a drinking problem. I do remember that. Yeah. And I think, you know, again, for our, our sense of, in many ways, we pride ourselves on the close-knitness of our community and the level of our religious commitment, the health and strength of our families. And so to see so clearly, just to be clear to our listeners, when we say our community has a drinking problem, we don't just mean that the amount of drinking among our 10th and 12th graders was higher than we would like it to be. It was significantly higher than comparable surveys by the federal government of American adolescents across the country. Our kids are drinking more, and our surveys show, again, our kids, I mean the Yeshiva League, not SCR High School. We don't have school-specific data. Our kids are drinking more, and according to the data, our kids are binge drinking more than your average American teenager is. And that was striking, dismaying, whatever negative word you like. And that led us to ask you about what we could do to address this. Yeah. 
Yeah, I remember that that conversation pretty pretty vividly in terms of you know that the data actually pointed to pretty good indicators in most things. Um, and in fact, oh, thank you for bringing that up. Yes, we, liked, we need yes. to be reminded of that every Just so often. Just wanted to make sure that what we saw overall was you know. Uh, pretty good indicators of, you know, the risk factors weren't off the charts, for example, although we did see some protective factors, things that that buffer against problems um, weren't as high as we would have liked. But um, but we did see, for example, that there weren't high rates of illicit drugs, you know, that, that didn't show up in your population. But what clearly did was, was the the alcohol. And so we had talked about doing this big, broader public health approach. And when looking at the data, it became pretty clear that instead, maybe just focusing on this thing for a little bit, you know, this idea of parental uh, communication around the expectations and focusing in on, you know, levels of alcohol use might actually really be a good idea. The other thing that happened in there to shift us away from the bigger, broader, across the whole community approach and towards something more focused and targeted was COVID. We actually did a second year of surveying. This is super interesting. We went to the OU at some point with our data. We wanted the OU to support intervention to address this. And Mr. Alan Fagan, who was then the executive vice president of the OU, said, you're coming to us with one year's worth of data, and you're asking us to back a pretty big intervention on the basis of one year's worth of data. We'd like to see some more data to make sure this isn't just anomalous, that there's something consistent here. And we said, oh, huh, that sounds like a good idea. So we surveyed again the next year. Just for sentimentality's sake, we surveyed on February 27th again, on February 27th of 2020. For those of you who were part of the SAR community then, you remember that March 2nd of 2020 was our last day in school. We were closed on March 3rd of 2020. I don't have to rehash those days for everybody, but SAR was in a cluster of the first institutions on the East Coast to shut down for COVID. And I told you that we did paper surveys so that students would feel that it was fully anonymous. The filled out paper surveys actually sat in school buildings, never got returned to Bach Harrison for analysis until the next September wasn't the most important thing in our minds right then. Right. We got the data. The data were consistent. We needed to do an intervention. But at the same time that Deline was saying to us that the data don't point to the need for a full-scale intervention because there's a lot of strength to build on in our community, community institutions were also incredibly overtaxed by the response to COVID. And nobody was in a position to launch a full-out community mobilization undertaking to address this. Okay, so we're going to try something smaller and more focused. What did the research tell us might be an effective smaller scale, more focused intervention. Um, so when we looked at at different um, possibilities, one of the things that popped up pretty quickly was a parent workshop series to do something that uh, invites parents to really talk to their kids about these behaviors. And one of the interventions that we at the um, Center for Communities That Care um, offer is something called Guiding Good Choices. And so we looked at that and said that this might be a really good chance for you to work with parents um, and to build protection and to focus on the behaviors of concern. One of the other things that pointed to the need to maybe work focus on the adults in the community was that some of our data specifically pointed to the role of adult modeling in kids' substance use. There was a very high correlation between kids who reported seeing adults around them get drunk or high 
and kids use. And the more adults around them they knew who got drunk or high, the more likely they were to use. And so that pointed to the fact that bringing parents into this conversation and enlisting them as partners was going to be really important. At various points, we've also spoken with shul rabbis, we've spoken with other community leaders, but that's all been in the effort of making this a broader undertaking. That's the public health approach, not just the school telling students you shouldn't do this, and certainly not just the school telling students, and you'll get in trouble if you do this, but saying what in the broader community do we need to shift in order to get to healthier behaviors? So just to fill you in on how that story went a little bit, the first couple of us were trained as Guiding Good Choices facilitators. We offered the first Guiding Good Choices cohort in SAR High School in May of 2022. We offered five more cohorts in SAR High School last year, plus two in the Englewood community, open to the whole community, and one in the Riverdale community, open to the whole community. And for this year, we were ready to say that Guiding Good Choices is mandatory for all ninth grade families. I've never asked you this, Daleen, so we're about to get an authentic answer live on the air, or I guess recorded on the air. What do you think about making guiding good choices mandatory as opposed to an opt-in for parents who feel motivated to do it? What are the advantages of that? What are the potential disadvantages of that? I was shocked that you were uh, all in in order to do this. We never worked with any other group that was this positive that this was going to be a good solution and and that really kind of dared, if you will, um, to work uh, in this way. There are a lot of questions about how can this, you know, how what does it mean to mandate and and, and what's going to happen there. But we often talk about um, birthing classes, for example. Folks who um, invented birthing classes have normalized that when you're going to have your first child that you should learn a little bit about childbirth if you haven't done it before. And nowadays, most Americans don't think much of it. They, they, they take it for granted that that's something you probably should do, but we haven't done that very well for adolescents like when you first have an adolescent like they're different and maybe it would be helpful to have a class about this so we have often wished that it would be at least well normalized we hadn't ever gone as far as thinking about mandating it but uh, i'm super excited to see your work here one of the things that we have found again and again in offering these cohorts and again if you heard my numbers by now it's been quite a few is exactly that. You bring together 24 parents in a room who may or may not know each other, may not know each other well, have real and honest conversations about the challenges of parenting preteens and teenagers, and to learn evidence-based, effective, usable, practical approaches for how to do that. And the sense of community that's built and like solidarity, and we're all in this together, and we're facing the same challenges, and no one's doing it badly, or you know, we're all doing it equally badly, we're all doing the best job we can, and we have each other's backs. Aside from everything that Guiding Good Choices gives us in terms of effective tools to parent, that sense of support and community in the hard work that we're doing of parenting preteens and teenagers has been something incredibly powerful that's come out of this for us. Yeah, it's, you know, we're hungry for these conversations. We don't know we're hungry for them necessarily until we have a chance uh, to talk this through, to feel not so alone, or to understand that other parents are struggling with these same things. We see that, again, not to burst your bubble, Rivka, but we see this in many communities that implement Guiding Good Choices, that this, this peer network is really important and valuable. 
So I think I'm done ready. That's five years ago having my bubble burst. I've accepted that we're not special. <laughs> I'm so happy that we have the benefit of your expertise and of the broader research community's expertise to help us do this. But maybe we'll conclude by asking you for some of your, as somebody who's done this in many, many different communities, some of your either guiding good choices, lessons from different kinds of communities or stories about different kinds of communities. Where have you done this? What have you seen? What is there for us to learn from communities that are like us, communities that are very different than we are or very different than we think we are, but from whom we can stand to learn something? Things. Share some stories. I guess one of the the first really big ahas I had was working with some parents just outside of Bogota, Colombia. Um, I went down there to work with parents, and I expected to hear different things, different challenges, different worries. And what I found was, no, the parents there were worried about the very same things that all the other parents that I had talked to were worried about. And they had the same kinds of dreams and they were hungry for these conversations. So for me, earlier on in my career, that was a really big uh, thing. You know, that was where it really solidified my firm belief in the fact that we're more alike than we are different was to hear them through a translator talking about the things that I was hearing in other places. I think that the other big learning um, has been that often folks who are parenting a group of children together or a single child together, I really thought or I had hoped that we would have conversations about what we really believe before we're faced with some problems, you know, or some testing of limits or whatever, many, many parents haven't talked to one another about how they really feel about certain things. Um, and so that was uh, another super big kind of aha for me. That too is something that we've seen in our Guiding Good Choices cohorts because one step before parents can communicate their values around anything to their kids, the step before that is the parents have to be certain that they are aligned and clear on what their values are. And every time we facilitate the cohort, we find parents who may not have spoken through all these issues, but discover when they do that they aren't necessarily perfectly aligned. And that's always a really interesting learning process. Yeah, just having haven't thought to really get into the details like they may be kind of big picture on the same page but when you get into the well what if they do it again kind of questions sometimes they haven't thought that all the way through so you know that's the other thing is just some of the really cool ways that parents have invited their children to contribute to the family i mean it's it's always interesting to hear different ways um, from, you know, everybody cooks a meal one night a week to um, different ways that they uh, play games together. It's, it's so fun to hear all of these ways that parents engage with their kids. We do it. Everybody cooks the meal one night, but each of my kids who cooks has one thing they make. So that's it. You know, that meal's coming around once a week, yep. which I guess if someone else is taking responsibility for dinner, I shouldn't complain about. It's like <laughs> vodka again, because I have one kid who that's that's what he makes. If he's cooking, we're eating vodka. I, I think one thing that we maybe that I neglected to say and that I really want to come back to more directly is the extent to which, as we saw in Rabbi Hartstark's email, we came to you with the concern about substance use. 
and the surveying pointed to a concern about alcohol use. But as we've gotten into the science and into the data, and as we've worked on the intervention, again and again it becomes clear that the same things that are protective against those specific behaviors are protective about a whole host of other things and that secure healthier outcomes for our kids overall. And this really becomes about having healthy, bonded, secure families and healthy, secure communities and the best outcomes for our kids. And it stops at a certain point being, even in our own heads, when we talk about it now, when we present it now, it's much less about how to stop our kids from drinking, even though that may be an outcome of a successful GGC cohort. And it's just really about those things that you spoke about. How do we secure the best outcomes, realizing our hopes for our children? Right. And it's less about stopping them from drinking. Right. It's, you know, how do we provide, prepare them to uh, enter the world as a productive and and um, happy uh, individual? And, and how can we buffer against some of the things that we know are going to be out there in the big world? Um, to give them the very best chance to not just survive, but to thrive. And that's that's really where this goes for me, is it's not protecting them from one thing, it's gifting them with the broader ability to fully step into lots of things in life. I'll conclude by quoting yet another Dalianism, oh which is that we're not raising children, we're raising adults. Raising future adults, absolutely. Tilly, Rabbi Hartstark often used to say, it's funny, he used to say all the time that we're not educating for 18, we're educating for 38. And the first many times I heard him say that, I was not yet 38 because I started here at SR a long time ago. So we were educating kids for Horizon that I wasn't even up to yet. But I think it's the same kind of idea. We're not just working for the short term. We're thinking in the long term of who we want their ki- these kids to be and how we want them to be as people in the world. And as we've moved towards thinking about that, We've moved towards thinking about guiding good choices not only as a how to extinguish certain undesired behaviors while they're adolescents, but how in many ways to help them make the best choices and live the, the most productive, successful, healthy, thriving, connected, contributing lives that they can. Yeah, and be truly adults. connected to their communities, right? Uh, however you define community. I mean, connection is important to us and to all of us, and, and we can leverage that to do really good things. Okay, so any final words of, well, before I say any final words of wisdom, I'll say this. We have been the beneficiaries of Daylene's wisdom for, again, we now know the exact date, so five and a half years is the exact date. We were in touch with Daylene, I don't know how many times, by email, phone, Zoom, and we actually never met in person until this past June 6th when she came to do a training at SAR High School, so that was really exciting. And I found myself telling people in the building, Daylene is coming, Daylene is coming. They looked at me like, who? Because unless you were involved in the Guiding (laughs) Good Choices effort, you had no idea what I was talking about. For us, this was very exciting. So as we close, Daylene, any final words of wisdom for the SAR High School community? Keep up the great work. I'm always so impressed when I come here uh, by the dedication of the staff, by the talents, by your concern for the kids, for your thoughtful way that you step into these initiatives. It's really, really rewarding to watch. So thank you for letting me be part of it. Thank you so much. Can't think of any better note to end on. Thank you so much, Daily. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Grand Conversation. Please be sure to visit our website, www.machonsiach.org, where you can subscribe to our podcast and find all of our work, papers and podcasts on a variety of subjects. Until next time, this has been The Grand Conversation, the Machon Siach Podcast.